Scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis 3. I think this is the first time I have ever done a two-part Scripture reading. Last week, we read the description of how the serpent tempted Eve, and then both Eve and Adam fell into sin. And I want to pick it up in verse 8. So I want to invite you, whether you use a phone or if you brought a Bible today, to follow along with me, Genesis 3, starting in verse 8, after Adam and Eve had sinned, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Scripture says that the consequence for sin is death, and as a result of their disobedience, both Adam and Eve physically and spiritually died. And yet even in this context, God gives grace. In the margins of my notes, I wrote next to verse 9, this is the first time God ever called a sinner and invited him to talk. And when Adam spoke with God, Adam, I think, continues to sin. It was wrong of him to place blame on his wife for what he had done. And God, in his grace, makes a promise to the woman. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 15. He says that there will come one of her offspring and he shall bruise the head of the serpent and it will be a fatal blow. That's why the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the snake crusher. He is the one that finally puts an end to Satan's evil. And today we live, thank you, amen. Today we we live in an era of already but not yet. That Christ has won the victory in the cross and in his resurrection. And yet Satan is called the God of this world and he continues to sow confusion and deceit. And many people are blinded and follow after him and they are not aware of what God has done in Christ. 
And so we follow after Jesus Christ by faith, believing that our own sins and the guilt that we inherit from Adam are covered by the blood of Jesus. And that although we still experience death, one day God will raise the dead. And that in perfect justice, every wrong will be made right. And those who trust in Christ will forever be blessed in the presence of God. And those who turn away from Christ will face the fearful wrath of a holy God who will forever put an end to evil. So the question then becomes, how do we live in this already but not yet state? Who are we called to be? What is the church called to be? And so I've been carefully preaching through 1 Timothy, a letter that Paul says he wrote so that one knows how to behave in the household of God. If you saw my email this week, you said, friends, I'm going to preach through probably the most difficult verses that I will ever preach through as a pastor. And so I asked for special and particular prayer, Uh, and one person in particular talked to me this week, and others have talked to me over the past few years and said, you need to be careful how you preach this text. Few people have suggested that that I don't understand it properly, um, and I'm sure there are others who would agree with that assessment, and so I want to be very careful in the message that I am about to preach. Um, I want to make this clear. Uh, If you are one of the people who's come to talk to me, I I am not using this pulpit to have a one-way argument with you and to talk to you. I'm preaching to myself and to the church of God here. This is is not intended to say, this is the way it is. Uh, In fact, as I asked others to pray for me this week, and as I prayed and studied, I felt like it was critical that I take this week and answer this question. What do we as a church do when we disagree about what the Bible says? What do we do when we disagree about what the Bible says? I believe that it is essential to preach the word faithfully. I believe that's how the Lord Jesus prepares his people to stand before him. Ephesians said that he washes his bride in the water of the word. And so if you are a believer in Jesus... Regularly hearing the word is helping you get ready to meet him face to face. And sometimes that word is difficult to hear. And when we disagree about what it means, I believe it is essential that we love one another and fight for unity. Not fight each other, but fight the things that divide us and work together to follow after Christ and to be obedient to his word. Last week, I preached from a verse that addressed men in particular. It said, lift holy hands in prayer without anger or arguing. And that passage was such a fitting reminder for me this past week. As I was tempted to be sinfully angry and proud and in moments gave into that temptation and have to repent of that. But we at First Baptist Church of Holly and everywhere that worships the Lord Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ even when we disagree. And so we need to honor and respect each other and to listen to people carefully who disagree with us. It's essential that we listen and respect. And so I want to begin, uh, and to be honest, this is a two-part message because as I prepared, I thought I have way too much material. Uh, I listened to a pastor, some of you know, Alistair Begg. He's a great 
great preacher. Uh, when he was preaching through this text, he thought he was going to do it in one shot. And at the end of the message, he said, Church, I have another sermon's worth of material here. And so rather than keeping you late, I'm going to end and we're going to say amen. And I'm sorry, this is a terrible place to end. I'm planning on dividing it in two, so hopefully it won't be a terrible place to end. But I want to recognize there is so much here that's difficult. I want to be careful in how I preach, and I believe our commitment to unity is essential. So in a nutshell, I'm not even really going to do very much in my text this morning, but in a nutshell, the text says that Paul, in the context of the gathered assembly, does not allow women to teach. And the question then becomes, how does that apply to the church today? Or does it apply to the church today? And here's what I want to do before I say another word. I want to recognize the ministries of women like Elizabeth Elliot, women like Alyssa Childers. Maybe you haven't heard her name before, but she's an apologist. She's got a great ministry helping people understand the faith. Rebecca McLaughlin, she's, she's written a book that I hope many of us will go through in the coming year, asking critical questions that Christians must think through. Women like Jackie Hill Perry, Nancy Guthrie, And I would be remiss if I did not mention just some of the ladies who have blessed our church. And so there are are some that I may have failed to to think of as I prepared, uh, and others that I was not blessed to know because they passed before I was here. But I want to mention by name people like D.R.C. Williams, and even Sue Lambert and and Amy Padgett, who serve with our Bible study, and Dory Nielsen, uh, who is taught not only here, but seminary for years, and recognize God's calling on their lives and the way God has used them to bless the church. And I should mention my wife, Lauren. She's sitting right there. Uh, she, also, <laughs> she also has taught in youth group and in different Bible studies, uh, and women have been blessed by her ministry. So saints, let me be clear. I believe God calls and gifts women to teach The question is where and how? And what does 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15 mean for us today? And more importantly for this week, what do we do when we disagree about what it means? How do we function as a church through disagreement? Part of the reason I want to take this week and say, what do we do when we disagree is because I'm not persuaded that we'll agree after I preach this message. And so, I want to fight, not each other, but I want to fight division and disunity and show how the church can continue to serve the living God in and through disagreement. And to do that, I want to point to a really famous disagreement in Acts 15 that I already mentioned a few weeks ago. And I want to address three things. Number one, our attitude in disagreement Number two, our actions in disagreement. And number three, the outcomes that we long for in disagreement. So number one, our attitude in disagreement. And I want to encourage you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. I want to read the first three verses. 
Paul had just been preaching the gospel. People were believing. And verse 15, or sorry, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 15 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, brothers meaning they're already Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now before we say anything else, how many of you have felt joy in the midst of disagreement? Isn't that a rare thing? Isn't that an act of God when instead of anxiety and fear and frustration, you feel joy in disagreement? Imagine your heart If you have just been baptized and you're excited that you're saved, your sins are forgiven, you're part of the family of God, and someone comes to you and says, nope, you're not saved yet. What would that do to you? How would you feel? What would you think? You heard the good news that God loved you so much he sent his son to die for you. And someone told you that you would be saved by grace through faith in the son of God. And that to demonstrate your faith, the right thing to do was to be publicly baptized and say, I died with Jesus and he's giving me life. They drew me up out of that water to show my faith that Jesus has saved me. Then somebody else comes along and says, sorry, that didn't do it. You still have work to do. You'd be crushed. This is not a small, insignificant thing. This is a major thing. That's why the text says that there was no small dissension and debate among them. It means it was huge. We don't use dissension and debate to talk about the church in positive ways, right? You never go home from church and say, I was so blessed by the dissension and the debate that happened in my church. Ever. And yet in the midst of this giant question, They have joy because of what God has done. Saints, I believe that's possible for our church today. But that is only possible when we look back at our lives and we look back at the ministries of this church and remember what God has done. Celebrate the good things and the way God has blessed you. Celebrate the people who have faithfully loved you and served you here. Celebrate the family that God has made us how he has moved and brought us together so that we worship him. If you are tempted towards anger and frustration and division, pause and look at what God has done and allow the Holy Spirit to move your heart to joy and rejoicing. So my first, my first point this morning is that we must fight for joy Amongst ourselves. Friends, I believe the people who have disagreed with me are saved believers in Jesus Christ. That he died for their sins and rose from the dead. And we will spend eternity together 
Let that eternity begin now by being patient and loving and kind as we disagree. One of my favorite verses is in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to give you two. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says, believers are to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. So if you can't say something in a loving way, don't say it. But you are also commanded to speak. And so it's not loving to avoid difficult conversations. Imagine what would have happened to these churches with Gentile believers if Paul had said, I don't want to divide the church. We're not going to fight over this. You guys figure it out for yourselves. You would have had Gentile Christians confused. You would have had Gentile Christians wondering if God genuinely loved them, if they really were saved, if the church did not address the issue. And so they were committed to seeking the truth and knowing what was true. They loved those Gentile Christians by wanting to understand God's word and what Gentiles were called to do as they believed the good news about Jesus. So friends, just because something is divisive, that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. To ignore it, is to allow division to remain and hurt people. But instead, we are to speak the truth in love. And Ephesians 4.25 says, let each one speak the truth to his neighbor and emphasizes the fact that we, we are our neighbors. To love your neighbor as yourself. If your neighbor knows something that you don't and you need to know, the loving thing to do is to talk about it. And so number one, our attitude in disagreement must be joy and love as we seek the truth. And friends, let's remember what God has done. Let's remember his call on each of our lives. Let's remember the times of joy that we've had together. And let's work towards understanding what's true. Number two, what I want to point to are our actions in disagreement. So first, I said attitudes in disagreement. We have to fight for joy. Joy is that attitude that maintains our love for one another. But my second point is, not only do we have to fight for an attitude, but there are actions that we should take. And the first that I want to point to is a little bit hard to see in this text, but you can see it in countless others throughout the New Testament. The first point that I believe we must be committed to is prayer for one another, And prayer especially for those that we disagree with. That God would bless them. That God would open all of our eyes to what's true. You can get a sense of this in in verse 28 of Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit in this text. But verse 28 of chapter 15. They say that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, as they wrestled with the scriptures and as they looked at what God had done among them, they were relying on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to guide them in truth. Which means we must pray. We must pray that our own sin and our own pride does not blind us to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That we would accurately see what's in the scripture and submit to the teaching of the Spirit. So number one, let's pray. 
Friends, I'm not giving these just to fill time on a Sunday morning. I want to ask you to pray for us. Please commit to do these things. Actions and disagreement, number one, pray. Number two might be sort of surprising, but number two, debate. Debate. Chapter 15, verse 7 says this, and it's actually the second place it says in this chapter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and then he's about to describe what God has done, and he's about to describe their understanding of the scriptures. But the point is, their dissension led to healthy debate and open discourse. Now again, we we don't praise debate in our culture very often. If someone is contradicted, it, it feels mean. And yet there is a way, without anger and without wrath and without quarreling, Earlier in 1 Timothy, if you, perhaps you remember, Paul condemns the kind of teaching that is speculative, that leads to division. So this is not an unhealthy debate, but this is a humble debate where joy and love and respect are maintained and people are honestly able to speak what they believe to be true. Friends, I am thankful for the people who have come and said, Pastor, we think you're wrong. That's a good and a healthy thing to do. That is an excellent thing to do. That's a praiseworthy thing to do because it allows us to have open debate. I am so thankful for the dissenting voices that have blessed this church, uh, a few of you for decades. Um, Somewhat humorously, I I mean it. Uh, There are tales of business meetings that happened maybe before I was born. I won't dwell on that too much. But there would be one dissenting vote. And you know what? That dissenting vote is a blessing to the church. It helps the people know we have wrestled with this. We are trying to understand what's true. And so in addition to prayer, there needs to be healthy and robust debate. Number three, actions and disagreement. You point to the scriptures. You point to the scriptures. I want to point you just to verse 15 here, although if you carefully read the chapter, they quote the Old Testament. There's so much evidence that they care deeply about what God said in the scriptures. But verse 15 says this, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. In other words, the New Testament church, as they make this decision, is looking to be consistent with the word of God. They are examining the word above all else. And so they point to the scriptures as they try to understand this critical question for the life and the unity of the church. I've said praying, I've said debating, I've said pointing to scripture. Now I want to say something else that's related to pointing to scripture. But fourthly, I would say studying is critical. And what I mean by that is not only studying the scriptures, but also hearing from different voices that have differing views. So listening to pastors you love and trust, looking out good resources, some of them somewhat academic and scholarly, and examining the evidence. Now this is especially hard when godly people disagree. 
Because then what are we left to do? Well, there are a couple of things that I want to say on this point. If you are a church member and you have a question, you need to examine it for yourself. But if you begin to realize this is, this is something that I'm struggling to understand, you need to have trusted people who have been able to pursue education that you can go to. And I would say go to multiple trusted people. Don't assume one guy's going to get it right. Make sure that you listen to a multitude of educated voices so that they can speak into your life things that you don't know. I'll give you an example that, that I desperately depend on my friends who know Hebrew. I, I know the alphabet and like two or three words. I, I studied linguistics, so I know a little bit about sentence structure. Mostly, I am keenly aware of how much I do not know. And so if I have a question about Hebrew, I have a friend that I call. He's more educated than I am. And I also know that I can't just take his word for it because he's just one guy. And the type of stuff that he studies is very particular and focused in one area. So if I asked him a general question someplace else in the Old Testament, he might not know. And the best friends will tell you, I don't know. That's so helpful. But friends, make sure that you read the text for yourself Ask yourself this question, what is the simplest understanding of the word of God? Very often, the simplest reading is correct. Number two, check your heart as you read and study. Are your own sins hindering your ability to understand the word? Are you trying to change the word so that it affirms and supports your chosen choice of action? Or... Are you willing to question your life in the light of God's word? And number three, after you've read the text for yourself and after you've checked your heart, reach for good resources. And and here's where it gets challenging. How do you know if a resource is good? How do you know if a resource is good? And I believe the best way to answer that question, real simply, is to examine the evidence they use for their claims. And I'm going to be very specific about this in just a minute. Examine the evidence they use for their claims. And I'm going to give you a couple of types of evidence. Number one, what parts of the Bible are they pointing to? Okay, is there biblical evidence for this? Number two, are they pointing to archaeological evidence? What archaeological evidence is there for this? Have they found inscriptions on an ancient temple? Are there ancient texts that describe this? Number three, are there ancient historians who talk about this? Are there voices from the past that we can read and know what they said and thought? And I want to give you one example. And I don't know, some of you I'm sure have heard of this, but you all have heard of Watergate, right? Well, I want to talk to you for a minute about Camelgate. Okay, Uh, so... There's a passage, and I'm going I'm to read it. You can turn there if you want. It's in Luke chapter 18. Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler who has come and said, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, you need to sell all you have and distribute to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I believe the most important words there are follow me. Because what Jesus did for that young man is he showed him the reason that he would not follow Christ. Scripture says, he went away sad because he was extremely rich. And Jesus, in a way that only Jesus can do, was showing that man, you are not as righteous as you think you are. You believe that through your good deeds, you can earn your salvation. 
but I'm showing you, you love your money and possessions more than you love God. And your unwillingness to give that up demonstrates that you will never follow me. And then he says this, verse 24, I'm in Luke chapter 18. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Some of you may have heard this before. I I, I don't know. Uh, This is a really famous example of bad preaching. Not that Jesus was a bad preacher. Jesus is the greatest preacher. But preachers have approached this text and said, you know, Jesus is not saying that it's impossible for a rich man to be saved. He's saying that it's really difficult. And if you knew the, the cultural context, you would know that there was a smaller gate close to the main gate in Jerusalem. And when they closed the main gate, if you needed to get into the city... You could unload your camel, and your camel would have to get down on its knees, and it would crawl through that smaller gate. And they would make analogies and say, you have to be humble when you come to Christ. You have to let go of all of your sins as you come to Christ. You have to be like that camel going through that gate. You know the problem with that is? There is no camel gate. The eye of a needle is literally the eye of a needle. It's a saying that means it's impossible. And you know how we know that? Okay, so there are three steps for trying to understand difficult texts. Number one, read it for yourself. Number two, check your heart. Number three, reach for resources. Well, if you follow step one carefully, read the text for yourself, look at the verses that follow it. Because the the disciples who actually lived in Jerusalem and knew about Jerusalem gates, verse 26 says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Because they understood he was saying it's impossible on your own. Verse 27, he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The point of his analogy is that it's impossible to save yourself just like it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Claiming that there is some sort of tiny gate that a camel could crawl through misses the entire point of what Jesus said. And do you know where the evidence for the eye of the needle camel gate came from? It didn't come from archaeology. It didn't come from ancient history. There's no mention of it until about 200 years ago when pastors wrestling with this text went, okay, we know it's possible for rich people to be saved. There are rich people in the Bible who are saved. So Jesus can't mean that it's impossible. Even though, just a few verses later, he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus did mean it is impossible to save yourself. You can't do it. But with God, it is possible. Jesus is trying to destroy this young man's self-righteousness so he learns to depend on God. And modern preachers, without any reference to archaeology or ancient history, turned that example on its head and suggested, no, it is possible, it's just really hard. Friends, that is an example of a terrible way to study the Bible. We ought not approach a difficult verse and try to explain it away by some unknown speculative hypothesis, even if it's a popular speculative hypothesis. That mistruth has been spoken by people we trust and love 
So people believe it is true even though there's no evidence for it and the text of Scripture clearly contradicts it. So number one, when you're looking for good resources, ask yourself the question, how are they backing up their claim? If you ask the question, how do we know this eye of the needle gate is real? Someone should be able to point you to a book or to a resource. And you ought to be able to say, so-and-so archaeologist dug it up and we found it labeled in the city of Jerusalem, Camelgate. Or some ancient historian like Josephus or Pliny talked about people going through this tiny gate. But there's nothing in ancient history about it at all. So when you say, okay, pastor or friend, what's your evidence for this? If they can't point to any, and they say, oh, well, we think that's what it means based on the text of Scripture, then okay, we're talking about something else here. We're talking about how do we read the Bible, and we all need to go back and read the Bible carefully. Stop introducing things that are fictional to try to color our understanding of what it says. Friends, here's a couple of points of application from that as we, as we try to understand what a good source is. We need to pay careful attention to the text Those of us who are preachers and teachers need to be very cautious in how we prepare and the things that we say. Those of us who listen to preaching have to be very cautious when people bring information from outside the Bible to change what the Bible means. And I'm not saying that we should avoid cultural and historical information. Sometimes it's very helpful. But I am saying we need to test and examine that evidence to see if it's valid. The Bible says that we are to test all things, to examine the scriptures. I believe it's a mistake to be more excited about a fallible scholar than the inspired word of God. Scholars make mistakes. God doesn't. And so we need to hold the word of God up high and be careful and cautious, even as we use good cultural information to try to understand what it means. Friends, I want to admit, I've made mistakes like this. In fact, I made one just last week. Uh, I'm, I'm reading through Matthew's gospel with a couple of friends. Uh, I left them a message on the phone, and then I went and typed up what I said basically on Facebook. And I, we looked at chapter 1 of Matthew, and I said something about how the, the genealogy gives evidence of the fact that Jesus is human. And it doesn't, because it's actually Joseph's genealogy, not Mary's. So the genealogy is there to show that Jesus has a rightful claim to the throne of David. And so after I posted that on Facebook, one of my friends who loves rigorous debate said, uh, that's not right. And do you know what I did? I said, thank you, you're right. That's not right. And I changed what I posted. That's what you have to do. All of us are going to make mistakes like this. It's hard Because often people we love will make mistakes like this. I have made them. People we trust make them. We have to go again and again lovingly and carefully to the word of God. And be wise and cautious and careful as we bring in information outside the word to help us understand it. At times it can be very helpful. On the 11th, I don't know if you guys read the rest of my text today. There's a very confusing verse in verse 15. It says that women will be saved through childbearing. There's so many questions there. What about women who don't have children? How is it, you know, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What does childbearing have to do with any of that? 
Uh, come back on the 11th and we'll talk about it. I am going to bring cultural information into that sermon. And the reason I believe that it's valid cultural information is I'm quoting a guy named Pliny, Pliny the Younger. There are actually two people in ancient history named Pliny. And he wrote about the terror that he experienced as a young father whose young wife was going through childbirth. And so there is a contemporary voice testifying to what childbearing was like in the ancient world. I'm not guessing about what it was like to live in Ephesus after 2,000 years of history. I'm reading a guy who could visit and know. There's a difference between quoting someone who's alive at the time and a 20th and 21st century scholar trying to guess at what it was like to live during that time. There's also the testimony of a young mother. We don't know her name. Uh, This kind of blew my mind. Do you know the average age for women to become grandmothers in the ancient world? It's in the 30s. Because very often women would marry young. And so this young, young grandma is terrified that her young, young daughter is pregnant. And she writes, thanking God that she survived the dangers of childbirth because many women didn't. And I'm not guessing about that. I'm reading a first century woman's account about it. And so I trust that her information is valid because she lived during the time. There's a difference between describing a cultural moment with archaeological evidence and guessing about a cultural moment based on a text of scripture with no archaeological evidence. I don't want to read between the lines as a preacher. In fact, I believe that is exactly what Paul condemns in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he says we are to avoid ignorant speculation. We are not to approach the scriptures and say, I wonder what cultural environment motivated Paul to say that. Especially when Paul points to the word of God and says, this is what motivated me to say that. I want to give you one more example and then really kind of get to the point. There's an ancient false teaching called Gnosticism. It's actually, it's a a pretty wide body of teaching. It was pretty diverse. But we know about Gnosticism, not from sort of reading a mirror image of the Bible where it crops up in different texts, and it does. I think John is addressing it in 1 John, at least a very early form of it. I think Paul actually references it. But we wouldn't know very much about Gnosticism at all if all we had to go on was the Bible. But the reason that we know about Gnosticism is that the Gnostics themselves left us manuscripts, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and many other writings that describe their philosophy and beliefs. And not only did the Gnostics leave us their writings that we can read and study, But ancient pastors like Irenaeus wrote books like Against Heresies, and they named their opponents so that you knew these people were historical. They're not off tilting at windmills. They're talking to specific people that were trying to lead the church astray, and they're warning the church, don't listen to this Valentus guy. He's not a faithful teacher of the word. He doesn't know Jesus. Ancient pastors had a heart for truth, And they wrote about error. And so we know a lot about ancient Gnosticism because the historical record has given us information about it. 
And here's where I'm probably going to be the most controversial this morning. Friends, when we turn to 1 Timothy and talk about the cultural environment of Ephesus, history has left us nothing. There are no false teachers that left us their teachings so that we can better understand what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy. When you look at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, the historical record actually describes a religion that was led primarily by men. And women were patrons of it, but their patronage was a rite of passage, and often in their patronage, in a godless, idolatrous religion, they were praised for their modesty and faithfulness to their husbands. So there are those who claim that the environment of Ephesus was an ancient sort of feminist movement. And the archaeological and historical evidence says the exact opposite. In fact, the New Testament shows that Christianity elevated the role of women and yet maintains a difference and distinction in how men and women serve in the church, absolutely as equally made in the image of God, absolutely as equally gifted and called to ministry, but called to serve in different roles. And so we're going to look in a few weeks at the role of elder overseer. And God uniquely calls men to serve as the elder overseer pastor. And a week after that, we're going to look at the role of deacons in the church. Friends, I believe that women can and must serve as the role of deacons. And Titus 2 makes it so clear that women are gifted and called to teach. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention women like Priscilla and Acts, who with her husband come alongside Apollos and help him understand the scriptures. There is a role for women in discipleship and in small groups and in teaching that I believe is essential. But I believe it's wrong to look at the verses at the end of chapter 2 and say there's a cultural environment that means these verses no longer apply to us today. Because when you examine the sources, no one claims that before the 20th century. No one. There's no evidence of it from a secular historian in the early first century. There's no evidence from it from modern archaeology. And if you want my sources for this, I have good books by people that are so weird, they love reading random trash from the first century. And when I call it trash, that's what it is. They would write things on clay, and they'd throw the clay away. So now 2,000 years later, we find little shards of pottery with stuff written on them, and some nerd wants to translate it. I'm glad they exist. It's helpful, but they're literally reading trash to help us have information on what the first century was like. And they're citing that trash in footnotes. The note from the young grandma that was afraid for her mother is like that. Friends, I believe that we will be blessed as we lean in to what the text of 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 12 through 15 means for us as a church. And I've spent a lot of time describing how I believe we can weigh the different voices 
that are speaking into this text. Now, I believe almost certainly there are, there are some who still disagree with me, and, and I probably haven't changed anybody's mind. So I want to go back to this idea. There must be love, and there must be respect, and there must be prayer, and we must move forward. I listened to, to two messages by Alistair Begg. I mentioned them a little bit earlier in this message. Alistair Begg points out that Paul in 1 Timothy is quoting Genesis the exact same way that Jesus quoted Genesis, as the inspired word of God that informs how we are to live our lives. And I believe that we must respect Genesis and we must respect the Apostle Paul as the Apostle of Jesus Christ, who wrote instructions so that we would understand how to function as a church. And I would ask that you would pray for me and pray that the outcome of our time of study and our time of disagreement would actually be joy. So I've got two things that I want to say here as I close. As I mentioned, the outcomes from disagreement. So I talked about the attitude in disagreement. I talked about actions in disagreement. Let me mention two outcomes from disagreement. And the first one is this. It's really the same as the first point that I had. They have joy while they go to the fight, and they have joy as it's resolved. Look at 15 verse 31 with me. Again, I'm in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 31. Scripture says, And when they read this letter that was prepared based on the meeting that these elders had, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The church was happy and blessed because people who disagreed faithfully studied the word and faithfully sharpened each other and then faithfully blessed the church with what they said. You know who would have been mad, though? The false teachers that told these guys that they had to be circumcised in order to be Christians. This disagreement does not go away in the New Testament. And the reality is, we need to fight for joy to make sure that we are faithfully following the Lord and not allow our disagreements to cause us to to dislike each other and to divide us. We need to maintain fellowship even as we work through what the scriptures mean so that the outcome from our disagreement will be joy. Friends, I said it last week, and in many ways this message builds on last week. I believe the light of the church will burn brightest in a culture that is deeply confused about what it means to be a man or a woman. And if we follow the Lord's word, we will be blessed even as it's hard. And so I want to encourage us to look at the word, to understand what it means for us today. And I want to give you the second outcome. One thing I hope you noticed as as I read the scriptures earlier today is that they had a plurality of elders decide this for the church. So that it wasn't, my pastor says this, my pastor says this, but there were representatives from the congregation that the congregation recognized were called by God to lead in ministry, and they came together and they argued with each other. And they spoke openly about their thoughts, no matter what they were. 
so that they could go back to the scriptures again and again. Friends, the hardest thing about leading a study in something like this is I'm kind of the only preaching elder. Chris will come in and and pinch hit, and he has other ministries that he's devoted to, like youth group and leading us in singing. But when it comes to something like this, I'm talking with church members, and they are a blessing, but at the end of the day, I'm the guy that stands here and has to preach. And so I have to be very cautious about mentioning who said what, when, where, and why. And I believe that our church would be blessed if we established a plurality of elders like the Bible talks about. So that when there are things that are difficult to understand, rather than me getting up here and saying, saints, I believe this is what the word of God says, I can say, saints, we as a group of elders believe this is what the word of God says. And that I would not be the only one up here standing and saying those things. But that other men that our church loves and trusts, some of whom you've known for decades, could come up and stand here and say, we together as the elders believe this is what the word of God says. This is the example shown in Acts 15. And I'll point you back to it as I close. Look at verse 2 again with me, okay? It's giant division, giant debate. What do they do? Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders, plural, about this question. And so there was a way for the church to handle disagreement that broadened the trust in the conclusion. So Paul didn't go by himself because if he had... When he came back to the church, they would say, yeah, but that's what you originally said anyway. How do we know? They sent delegates to build trust in the local congregation. And men like Peter and James were part of the public debate. So Paul wasn't saying by himself, church, this is what's true. But together they sought the Holy Spirit and examined the scriptures and the plurality of elders was able to lead a change that was difficult and divisive for decades. This issue did not go away. Read the rest of the New Testament. The church had to have unity on what the word of God said and the only way they had unity was when trusted godly men worked together and argued and fought for what was true with joy. So saints, I would ask for you to pray for a couple of things. I believe that we urgently need to restructure our leadership. And when I say urgently, I don't mean that we need to be in a hurry. We need to be careful and wise in how we do it. I think we need to have a couple of church meetings before our annual business meeting in October. I believe we need to talk openly about how the Bible describes leadership structured in the local church. And I believe the time has come for us to ask, should we make some serious changes so that the entire congregation is discipled and built up? So that there are deeper discipling relationships between the elders of the church and every member. So that it's easier for new believers to go deeper in their faith. So that it's easier when there's conflict and pain to go to a group of people you trust. So that when there's division, we can handle it well. Friends, I believe that God will bless us as we follow his word. And so today, would you commit with me to praying about this change? 
that we would do it well, or perhaps it's, it's going to go to a, a congregational vote that if this is not the time for this change, that God would move in our hearts as his people to be wise and careful about it, to seek his guidance among our leaders, and to maintain our unity and our joy. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, these are difficult things. And God, I confess that it's easy for my pride to to get in the way. I, I pray that you would help us to speak the truth in love, to examine the scriptures to know what's true, to submit to them for our church in our time. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would be among us, binding us together through pain and division and conflict so that we could be the church of God that shines brilliantly in holly, pointing people to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, as you have given gifts to each of us, may we use them to your honor and your glory. And I pray that you would help us to all humbly submit before you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.